Today, we are going to talk about Disneyland. So even if you're not a Disneyland fan, I hope that you will sit back and enjoy a therapist's take on the Magic Kingdom. ago with my wife, my daughter McKinley, my niece Taylor, we headed to Disneyland down in Southern California. And a true confession, I did not go to Disneyland as a kid. And I don't want you to get out the violins or the sad music. But my first trip was with Wendy a couple of years after we were married. And she would go often as a kid. So she was so excited to share the, the magic of Disneyland with me. And it was wonderful. And we were married in the year 1990, so long ago. So I have to believe that we went somewhere in that early to mid-90s. And so for anybody keeping California Adventure, the other theme park that is across the the little pathway there to Disneyland, was first opened in 2001. So our first trip was classic Disneyland. I did a quick Google search, and the rides consisted of the classics. There was, of course, Small World, which literally did break down on us halfway through. And that song to this day still brings back memories, is a nice way to put it. Of that first trip, there was Pirates of the Caribbean, Uh, That was pre the addition of Johnny Depp's Jack Sparrow talking to you right before you made that ascent back to sea level, as well as so many other rides that were based off of the classic movies like Peter Pan and Cinderella and Dumbo and you name it. But this time around, we were pros. We had been dozens and dozens of times with our kids. And despite living in Northern California for a few years, we held season passes and we had made the drive down south whenever we had a free weekend and loaded up the kids and we were going to create good memories, on it. But this was one of the first times where I felt like there was absolutely zero kid-related responsibilities. Sure, McKinley is my kid, but she was, I don't know, she's 20, 21, 22, somewhere in that range. And we could just go and be present. And in doing so, honestly, my therapist brain was on high alert of all the various correlations to the entire mental health world, the mental health process. So today, welcome to episode 276. We're going to talk about those things that uh, the therapist picks up on while in Disneyland. So 276 episodes. Welcome to this episode of The Virtual Couch. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified mindful habit coach and a writer and a speaker and a husband, father, four, all those wonderful things. And I still would encourage you to go to pathbackrecovery.com if you, if you want to learn any everything you want to know about putting pornography as a coping mechanism in the rearview mirror. And it can be done in a very strength-based, hold the shame, become the person you always wanted to be way. But man, episode 276, I have to do a quick side note. I was at an event this weekend and I ran into someone, a woman named Robin Copa. Robin had been a guest on my podcast, I think on episode 19. And it was so just uh, fun to see her there. And we reminisced a little bit. Of course, I, I had my blockade of people. I had my handlers, my bodyguards now, now that I have 276 episodes And as I had one of my assistants communicate with her, I wouldn't have her communicate directly with me. Man, okay, I'm trying to be funny right now, but I think, what if somebody really doesn't believe me? I had this whole bit in my head about that I was there with my my hair plugs and my gold teeth and all those things. I really wasn't that way. It was so good to see Robin, but she had just asked some questions about how the podcast has grown. And I do remember sitting with her literally on my couch on episode 19 to talk about parenting and recognizing in that moment, I wasn't really sure how to do an interview with two people in the same room and see if you could hear us. And I think if you go back on and listen to that episode, you don't really hear us very well. So it was so neat to just uh, reminisce with Robin about those early days of the podcast. And I'm so grateful for people who do listen to the episodes. And um, before we get to the topic today, of course, Magnetic Marriage Course, I know I talk about it often, but it's because it's a phenomenal opportunity to teach you and a spouse new communication skills and ways to be more connected. And we'll give some examples even today of using the four pillars of a connected conversation, even when I was with my wife at Disneyland. But the next round of the Magnetic Marriage course is coming up, and you can go to tonyoverbay.com slash magnetic to find out more, or just drop me an email through the website through tonyoverbay.com and let me know if you're interested, and I'll make sure that you are one of the first to know when the next round starts. And this is fun. I'm heading to Utah later this week to film an episode of Family Rules with Brooke Walker. And I'll be talking about parenting. So if you don't follow me on Instagram, please do at Virtual Couch. And I'm going to try to film a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. And I will keep you posted on when that episode will air. I know it's for their season three, and I'm not sure when season three debuts. So that's going to be fun. But let's get to 
the things that I learned at Disneyland. So I first want to start with this concept of anticipation and the way that dopamine works in our brain. Do you have things in your life that you anticipate? Date nights with a spouse or small vacations, little weekend getaways, or do you have one big vacation that you're looking forward to that uh, might even be months out? Or I remember when I used to do a lot of racing, ultra running, I typically had a race once a month. I would do 12 to 15 events a year. And I realized later that that was a way for me to always have something on the calendar, something to train toward, something to really look forward to. And a lot of that is we, we now have some pretty cool science around anticipation and dopamine and the way dopamine works with the reward center. So the person who put this best is James Clear and in his fantastic book, Atomic Habits, He's talking about cravings, but the science is, I think, similar or spot on. And I will relate this to Disneyland. He said that cravings are the most underrated component of the habit loop because they have only recently been better understood. The strength and influence of cravings can best be demonstrated with a quick explanation of neurobiology. So he says that dopamine, and I think we hear so much about dopamine, dopamine is the primary neurotransmitter in our reward experiencing pathway. And it was designed to evolutionarily encourage positive behaviors that help in survival. So that was the, that's why we have dopamine, to encourage positive things, to encourage. So dopamine plays into that reward center and we want to reward ourselves when we do good things. So that kind of makes sense. But he said only recently was it discovered that the largest dopamine spike in the brain occurs in anticipation of the reward, not actually while experiencing the reward. So put that into context of when you are anticipating the reward, anticipating date night, anticipating um, going on vacation, anticipating the next race, anticipating whatever that you are anticipating, but that will actually spike or flood dopamine. And dopamine is this chemical that not only is this feel-good chemical, but it's also somebody like me with ADHD. When you take a medication, a stimulant, it is helping flood your brain with the dopamine that it's missing so that dopamine also helps you stay hyper-focused and fixated on something. So it had been a while since uh, we had been to Disneyland. So the anticipation factor really was on full alert. And we got there and we immediately made this beeline to California Adventure. That was the tickets that we happened to have, these park hopper tickets. We had to start in one park and then at one o'clock, the floodgates would open and we could go back and forth, these park hopper tickets. So we went to California Adventure and my favorite ride is the one formerly known as Tower of Terror. But now it was Guardians of the Galaxy. So that was something that I had not experienced. And I, again, I love everything about the ride that was Tower of Terror. So now I had this uh, Guardians of the Galaxy experience to look forward to in a ride that I already knew the basics of. I was going to be going up in a tower and I was going to be dropped and, and lifted up and dropped repeatedly. And I love that. I love that feeling in my stomach. And I really enjoy the movie Guardians of the Galaxy. So the anticipation was on high alert. So just waiting in line, my dopamine was flowing. I was like a little kid. I was so excited. I was locked in. And that ride did not disappoint for even a single second. It really didn't. And the lines were really short. We timed it just right as the, the world was reopening post-pandemic. And we immediately went back and did it again. And that was the first time where I realized that the dopamine was definitely higher flowing in that anticipation of the unknown. And then we experienced the ride, which was amazing and fantastic. But I could notice that even when we were in line again for that second ride, that it wasn't that now we were bored out of our gourds and we didn't want to do it anymore, but it definitely wasn't that same excitement. But here was what I thought was so amazing and that I was so aware of this uh, for the rest of the trip, that the addition, every time we went, um, and this I feel like this further backed up Clear's research, you have these opportunities in Disneyland to get your picture taken, which when I was a dad of younger kids, I found pretty annoying because then the kids always wanted the pictures and the pictures were very expensive. And then I would feel like a bad dad because I couldn't afford all the pictures, which by the way, now I feel like my ADD is flowing, but it was so fascinating to look at all these other angles of Disneyland. They had a, an opportunity where you could buy all the pictures in one day for, I think it was $20. And so I bored my wife, my daughter and my niece to tears and talking about what I've learned about the role of an actuary, because I've had clients now that have become actuaries for insurance companies or one that did for a, a large, uh, I think it was an online gambling establishment. But what an actuary does is they figure out the math, something I'm not very good at, but they figure out that math of what makes more sense to charge individually for the pictures. Or if you will, you get more money if you just say, OK, we can do $14.95 a picture or we can say $19.99 and then you get all the pictures you want in the day. 
So they had this photo pass, 1999. Obviously, the people at Disneyland are, they're smart. They want to make a profit. So that must have been the financially better decision. And I was in. So then we were going to get pictures taken all over the park and every ride. So in every single ride, yes, we would then start to feel, again, it wasn't that we were bored or our affects were flat as we were waiting to go on the ride again. But I found myself, and I'll give you Splash Mountain as an example. The first time down that death-defying drop when we're almost fallen out of the log, the pretend log, to get the best picture we can as we're, we're plummeting to our death. That was exciting. So then the next time we go in, as we're waiting in line, and even as we're just meandering on this water ride, this log flume, it did feel a little bit like I could almost fall asleep. But then when it was almost picture time, I remember at one point I was literally this, okay, guys, it's go time because we will go over what picture we're we going to do. And I think we had a really funny one where, I don't know, my daughter Mackie holds her phone out. It looks like we're taking a selfie. We're on this just steep decline and we're all piling out to the left or the right to posing for this photo. So that was a really fascinating experience to just see that, okay, that initial ride was amazing. But then we took an okay picture and then we proceeded to ride it several more times, the ride Splash Mountain over the next 72 hours, always with the goal of taking a better, funnier picture. So the dopamine would be at bay until you got right up to the drop and then it was go time and it was picture time and the excitement was solid. And so I found that same experience the first time we went on the ride of Indiana Jones. It was amazing and we held on for dear life and we had fun. And then we went again, wondering what it would feel like if we just didn't ever hold on to anything with our hands at all. And that was thrilling and it was exciting. And every moment that, again, dopamine was just flowing. And uh, we were thrown around like ragdolls, which was new and it was novel and it was exciting because our brains, they do want more and more and more. And not that I would anticipate that you were guessing that I would probably talk about anything to do with pornography and a talk about Disneyland, which there's, I'm not putting a correlation there together. But I did think this was a fascinating time to talk about this concept called the Coolidge effect. I did an episode on this a long time ago, but it's, again, talking about dopamine and tolerance. So our brain, again, I just made the comment that our brain wants more and more. It wants new, it wants novel, and it wants exciting. And there was an article a few years ago by a Harvard scientist, Kevin Majerus, and he talked about the role of dopamine. And, uh, and I thought he, he said that this is really fascinating to me. He sh shared that scientists have discovered, and hang with me here, but if you place a male rat in a cage with a receptive female, they will mate. But once done, the male rat will not mate more times, even if the female is still receptive. He loses all sexual interest. But if right after he finishes with the first female, you put a second receptive female in, he'll immediately mate again, and then a third, and so on until he nearly dies. And that same effect has been found in every animal studied. And this is called the Coolidge effect. And there's a funny story of why it's called the Coolidge effect. And I'll let you go find the podcast I did on the Coolidge effect to hear more about that story. But so... Kevin Majerus said this explains why men use pornography. Pornography's power comes from the way it tricks the man's lower brain. One of the drawbacks of this region is that it can't tell the difference between an image and reality. So pornography will often offer a man an unlimited number of seemingly willing females. And every time he sees the new partner with every click, it gears up his sex drive again. So that means the lower brain, this uh, Neanderthal part of the brain, actually will eventually come to prefer pornography to the real partner. And so he says, think of the difference between playing chess and playing the latest video game. Even though chess isn't physical, it can't compete with the intensity of the video game. And the brain over time prefers the video game. And the reason it does is because of this chemical dopamine. So then what he talks about is that uh, dopamine is also, we talk about this, it's this hyper-focused drug. It's also this drug of desire. And so when you see something desirable, or as uh, James Clear talks about in Atomic Habits, or when you find something desirable, when you anticipate something desirable then the brain pours out dopamine. And so it says dopamine fixes our attention on that desirable object. So it gives you this power of concentration. So he says that when somebody clicks and sees this new pornographic image, the lower brain thinks that it's the real thing. So now all of a sudden his brain says, we must win over that willing female. So the first exposure to a new female who wasn't a potential mate wasn't something that happened to a lot of our ancestors, maybe only once in their lives. It's this, their brain was designed to find their, our potential mate and pour out this dopamine, win her over, do a nice little dance, ruffle some feathers, whatever they do in the animal kingdom, and then we get our mate and then we are good. So we're continually um, just gaming this dopamine system. And so when you look at it in terms of something like roller coasters or that sort of thing, it's pretty harmless. It can be really fun. But when it comes to someone that is searching out uh, pornography as a coping mechanism, he said that if a person keeps up the dopamine screen by overstimulating himself with porn, 
then his brain will start to turn the volume way down. And the brain synapses don't like being overstimulated with dopamine, so they respond by down-regulating some of the dopamine receptors, which means that those dopamine recept receptors, they withdraw and they destroy that receptor within the neuron. So down-regulation is how the brain turns down that dopamine volume. And then once the dopamine binge is gone, it's left feeling this vacuum of silence, so it feels depleted. So he says uh, that's why pornography can cause this vicious cycle, that when someone who is prone to addiction views pornography, then they get overstimulated by dopamine. Their brain will destroy some of those dopamine receptors, and that makes them feel depleted, so they go back to pornography. But now having fewer dopamine receptors, they will need to game the dopamine system. They start to find that they have to use the pornography for longer or longer periods of time to have the same effect. And they may even have to start looking at more know, crazier, wilder things to try to get that same dopamine stimulation. I've got a whole episode on that. And the good news is you can rebuild those dopamine neuroreceptors by, by becoming able to turn away from pornography as a coping mechanism. But anyway, I digress, and I really didn't uh, plan on going into that much detail, but I think that's such fascinating science, especially as we learn more about the role of dopamine. So dopamine and the anticipation of a roller coaster is fascinating. So I, I was, okay, the next thing that I learned in Disneyland, and uh, this was so exciting, and I want to give a huge shout out to a podcast called The Happiness Playbook. My buddy Neil Hooper hosts it, and one of my good friends, Laurie Florence, is the one who started it. And she runs an incredible nonprofit theater group in my area called Take Note Troop. And they, Lurie came up a long time ago with something called Play Theory. And you can go to playtheory.org and I would highly, highly recommend you go check out playtheory.org and the Happiness Playbook podcast. But they have these four principles of play theory. And the second one is called Let Go and Play. And my, I had a daughter, my, I have a daughter, daughter, my daughter Sydney was in the Take Note Troop theater group years ago and was in a few plays. And I remember being introduced to this concept of play theory and I, I fell in love right away. And the second principle of play theory, and I don't, I think I've ever shared this with Larry, but I remember that so well, that let go and play. And so I thought about that often while we were at Disneyland. I think about it often in a lot of things that I do, especially when I'm out in public or I'm with my family or kids or we're somewhere and we're just trying to be in the moment. But so let go and play on playtheory.org. They say, leave the ego at the door, have fun, leave your comfort zone. And what's up the phrase the, the kids all use? Send it, go all in and nowhere do I do this more than on rides. And being at Disneyland now, again, trying to be as present as possible, having just gone through this, what, year, year and a half of quarantine and committing, man, I thought I did mindfulness before but just having daily mindfulness practice over and over. It's now been years and years, but I had to double and triple down on my mindfulness practice over the last year and a half just to be able to stay present and, I don't know, stay afloat at times, emotionally, mentally. What that looks like is let's scream. You know, let's have an amazing time. And I, there were so many times where on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad or on uh, the water ride in California Adventure or on Space Mountain where, and my wife is just, she's all in with me, that when we are on that ride, I let it go. I scream like a little kid. I throw my arms up in the air. I have the most fun and I want that to be infectious. I remember getting on the water ride. Again, it's this eight people in this rounded tube and you're going to get soaked. This is a California adventure and, and just prepare to be soaked. And that's part of the fun. But we had four of us and four strangers that walked in, two groups of two, and immediately, and maybe some of you aren't going to like being on a ride with me, but I'm asking them, is this your first time on the ride? Are you excited? Are you worried about getting wet? And already these people that are feeling like, okay, they were just going to keep to themselves or starting to share with us a little bit more. And then the anticipation, the dopamine starts flowing and we are just in that moment and we are having an amazing time. And if somebody gets wet, we're screaming and oh my gosh, and no, no, and try to move away from the water. And we just had the best time. We let go and play. And how often can you check your ego at the door and let go and play? It's one of the most powerful things to show your kids. It's one of the most things that will, will cause you to feel the most alive. If you're out there in public and you're so worried about what other people think about you, which let me tell you is normal. I feel like that is most people's default setting. And I know that it didn't help growing up a lot when I would tell my kids when they would say, dad, that's embarrassing. And I would say, okay, well, if I see all these people tomorrow, then I'll apologize then. And I used to think I was pretty witty about that. But really, all you can do is be present for yourself, even in the with the fear of invalidation, that if somebody else saying, oh, geez, you're embarrassing me, well, man, I, I am so sorry that, that you are embarrassed, but I am going to go all in. 
So that let go and play at Disneyland was one of the most amazing things that you could possibly do because you only have one chance to make the most of every single moment of your life. So live it. And what I love about the principles of acceptance and commitment therapy is even then our brain will say, well, man, I I haven't made the most of my life or maybe I haven't been as present or I haven't been able to let go and play. And that's okay. We'll note that. Your brain is constantly trying to orient itself by ruminating about the past. I wish I would have done more of this. I wish I would have known this earlier. I wish I would have been able to do these different things. And it's perfectly normal and human. And when you notice that you're having those thoughts or ruminations or looking back at the past, then just, just note it. Just like, man, yeah, I wish I did. I wish I would have had my ADHD diagnosis 15 years earlier. I would have been a whole lot more productive. Okay, I'll note that. Or we then go and we fortune tell. We get our crystal ball out and we say, and what if I'm, what if I'm not present? What if I'm not able to accomplish the things that I really want to? then we'll just acknowledge that. Then, man, that would be hard. And I hope that's not the case. But I'm going to drop the rope of the tug of war on the past and the future and just worry about right now. Not even worry. I'm going to be present. That is one of the best things that you can do. And I was going to save the best for last of the things that I learned at Disneyland. But I know how podcasts are consumed. I know that sometimes we do have the best of intentions and we get distracted and we don't come back to a podcast. So I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be human. I'm going to be raw. I'm going to be authentic in all the therapist words. And I want to talk about an exchange that I had with my wife and I got her clearance to share everything about this exchange. Because if you are in a relationship, if you're a couple, you are interacting with with older parents or siblings or your kids or people in the workplace, I think you get the point. If you are a human being, then I think there's some gold to be mined in this conversation. So I jotted down some notes. So forgive me if you're watching this on the YouTube channel. I'm going to be reading a little bit here. So I I really do enjoy a good nap. I feel like I don't. I I try to get the most out of every minute of every day. So when it is time, downtime, my brain tends to say, we're just going to shut off right now. And there's something oddly satisfying to me about almost this repetitive tasks in order for me to provide an even better napping experience. It's almost as if my brain knows what's coming so I can actually relax. So I'm setting the stage here that there are places that I nap at Disneyland that are amazing. I can nap through now. It's a small world and it's just such a pleasant, pleasant nap with the repetitive nature of the song going on. Or I can nap like a champ in Pirates of the Caribbean. And a quick side note, when I was going to school, I started my college experience in Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas. I was trying to play baseball there. And We would leave my, I was in this fraternity and we would walk the campus and in the winter it was brutally cold. And at that time I also had a horrific comb over. I was losing my hair like nobody's business. I hadn't uh, dealt with that yet. So man, and it would just cold and windy. And so I would, if I could get into a building and then try to go take care of my flap of hair on the top of my head and be somewhat presentable, I wasn't going to go back out again. So even when I had gaps in the day, hours at times between classes, I would stay in a particular building. And there was one where I found this giant lecture hall and it was this two hour lecture three days a week. I have no idea what the subject matter was, but I would just go in there and I would just settle down and I would take the greatest nap in the history of all naps, three days a week, almost my entire freshman year. And it was this amazing experience because of just the repetitive nature, the droning of the professor. And it was just amazing. But anyway, pirates, it can be my nap time. So we're on the ride, and here's where it's not going to be my best self, but uh, again, i got to own this. Wendy and I are in a row of seats by ourselves. I think we're uh, in the second row. I believe my daughter uh, daughter McKinley and my niece Taylor are in the front row. And my wife just happens to be on her phone. We're starting to just float at the beginning. If you're familiar with the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, the restaurant, the Blue Bayou, is to our right, and we're not yet engaging in the ride. And I don't know what my wife is looking at. She's on her phone, and I just impulsively make this comment, and I just say, hey, uh, are, are you present? Make sure you're present. And the second it came out of my mouth, I wish I could have taken it back. And I immediately apologized. And I knew it wasn't necessarily the time, but I did not want to ruin that ride for her by what I had said. And so we worked through the four pillars of a connected conversation right there before we started getting into the, the real um, meat of the ride. And so stay with me here because there's uh, some concepts of the magnetic marriage course that I'm going to bring into here, these four pillars of a connected conversation. And it was amazing. So either one of us could really jump into the framework if both of us were aware or if both of us were committed to using these four pillars of a connected conversation. But even if one of us wasn't aware of the four pillars, you can still get to this framework. And, And let me explain. So I see her on her phone. So at that point, when I finally notice that I am being a complete 
weenie, a turd, you fill in the blank, and that that was something that I wish I had not said, then I can, pillar number one, assume good intentions. So by that, I mean that if I'm seeing her on her phone and it bothers me for some reason, we'll get to that, that then I can assume that she's not trying to do that to hurt me. And I know that can sound odd or maybe out of context, but stick with me here. So pillar number one, which is a game changer. I heard it two or three times yesterday in sessions of people talking about that one is so it helps people stay more present. So assuming good intentions, she wasn't on her phone to try to hurt me. She didn't wake up in the morning and say, okay, the second the lights go down, I'm on blue by you. I'm getting on that phone. I'm going to annoy the heck out of Tony. That's what I'm going to do. There's no chance. That wasn't what was happening. Pillar number two, I can't say she's wrong or project the message that I don't believe her or that I think that she's wrong. And what that would mean in this context is that I can't then put off the vibe that that what she is doing is wrong, even if honestly I feel like it is. The third pillar is ask questions before making comments. And I feel like you can assume the good intentions and you can not put off a message if I don't believe someone. But then if you just say, all right, but let me just tell you my thoughts and then I want to hear what you have to say. So if I would have gone in there and just blasted her, so to speak, and told her all the reasons why I think that that was not the right way to be enjoying Pirates of the Caribbean, but now I want to hear what her experience was, and that is the wrong way to do it. And I know I can go worst case scenario here, but I talk about it often, but I've literally had experiences before where someone like in that situation, me, for example, if I would just say, I really think you should be more present and I feel like what you're doing is going to, the glare of your phone is going to bother people or whatever. And then if she were to say, Hey, my mom just texted me and and one of my, one of my siblings is sick, but then I'm going to feel like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Do whatever you need to do. We need to have that uh, attitude of, you do whatever you need to do because you're you, you're a human. I think it was last week's episode, I talked about the concept of control. In, a, in an adult relationship, you can have control or you can have love, but I don't believe they can, I don't believe they're both, I don't believe they both go together. So that questions before comment, that's that I could say, hey, tell me more about what you're doing. And then my fourth pillar is to stay present. Don't go run into the bunker. If I would have just, even if I would have hung in the first three pillars, assume good intentions, not put off this vibe that she's wrong. And, and I would have asked questions, tell me more before making my own comments, if they were even valid or necessary. But then the fourth pillar, if I would have said, yeah, whatever, doesn't matter. My opinion doesn't matter anyway. You're going to do whatever you're going to do. Then all of a sudden I've gone into victim mode and now I want her to come rescue me. I want her to say, no, 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 I, you're right. I shouldn't be doing that or, or that sort of thing. So you can see how unhealthy a conversation can be or how unproductive a conversation can be and all the various ways that it can venture off into this unproductive uh, path or down this unproductive path. So in this scenario, I I basically worked through those pillars for her. And then when in that scenario, once I felt like I'd expressed myself or, or I felt heard and she didn't say, okay, you're being ridiculous or that sort of thing. Then it was my turn to take accountability for what I had said. And, and that is where I realized it was more about, and let me quickly circle back there is that she even said, okay, hey, yeah, all right, she's going to assume good intentions of me even saying that, even though I was being a jerk, that assume good intentions that I wasn't trying to hurt her by saying, hey, pal, be more present. And then second pillar, she was so gracious and kind and didn't, didn't say to me, you're ridiculous, even though she probably felt like I was. And pillar three, then she's asking me, hey, tell me why that bothers you. Tell me more about that. And then her pillar four, she stayed present. She didn't say, okay, I I guess I won't do anything that I want to do because you don't want me to be on my phone. So we both felt heard. And when we both felt heard, especially when I felt heard, man, it was my turn to take accountability and ownership for what I had said because that was more about me. And here's the fascinating piece to this, this exchange is that had we been arguing or had she all of a sudden shut down or if I had was going to force my, I wanted her to understand that she needs to not be on the phone because of how I feel, then all of a sudden we're locked into what Sue Johnson, founder of Emotionally Focused Therapy, calls these demon dialogues. And then we get into the tit for tat or people do the freeze and flee or the, the pursue and withdrawal. There's these, they, they, there are these dances that we get into. And what's so unproductive about those dances is she could have easily said, okay, well, you do this. And I've said, okay, well, but you do this. And that's the tit for tat. And what are we not talking about when we're into these demon dialogues? We're not talking about the core issue or the core emotions or feelings that are underneath why we express ourselves the way we do. So she stayed present and she heard me. So again, I felt heard and I had to take ownership and accountability. Please do not skip this step of taking ownership of what meaning you put to something. So I realized this is more about me. I realized it was about the times where I feel like she may spend more time looking at her phone than what, like looking at me and and adoring me. It's not exactly that, but maybe not being as present with me 
maybe when, when we are together. And so this is such a common thing that couples are dealing with. So I was able to share that with her, that it was my anxious attachment style. It was my needy attachment style that was underneath my comment to her. It was my way of wanting to just say, hey, uh, don't you care about me? But boy, did I do it in the wrong way. So she stayed present. She heard me. She validated me. And then she dropped true knowledge on me and saying that she appreciated me taking ownership of my comment and my feelings because her immediate thought when I had just blurted that out and boy, you could see how we could have got into a tit for tat really easily. And then I probably, maybe I wouldn't have taken ownership of my role in that conversation. But she said that my proclamation going into the pirates of wanting to nap through the ride I didn't really sound like I wanted to be very present, but I didn't see that. So then once I felt heard, once I took ownership that, hey, you can be on your phone, you can do whatever you want to do. You are in a differentiated, interdependent individual, and I care about you. Regardless, I care about you. You don't have to be a certain way for me to love you, that you, I want you to be you, and I want us to be able to have these conversations out of curiosity and from a, hey, tell me more about that standpoint. Because that's when we get to the good stuff. And this is, in, and that's why I wanted to go in so much detail about this little exchange. I just talked more about it than we did on the ride. But you can see how being able to have a framework to have the conversation, that we left that conversation and we both felt heard. We both felt like we took ownership or accountability of our part. And we felt we could, we could understand the good intentions behind why I said this really silly thing. And, and why she why she does the things that she does. She does them because that's who she is. And she's human. She has her own experiences, as do I. And so we can have more productive conversations when we have this framework that isn't about uh, tit for tat or back and forth or anyone trying to control the other one saying, here's what you need to do on this ride, that kind of thing. Speaking of pirates, that also brought up a really fascinating thing to me. And that's this concept of nostalgia. So when I talked earlier in the episode, I mentioned that I did not go to Disneyland growing up. And then I, again, I'll own this. I don't think this is anything that can key the gasp, the loud gasp sound effect. I did grow up going to a couple of theme parks, Dollywood in Tennessee, and I think a Six Flags in Texas when I visited my cousins one time. And so I knew roller coasters and those were exciting to me. So when I went to Disneyland for the first time as an adult, I was a little bit, and I didn't think, I, I thought it was full of all these amazing rides. I didn't realize it was more about nostalgia. So then I did a little bit of digging for this episode, and I found a, an excellent podcast called Speaking of Psychology. And there's a Dr. Christine, I think it's Bochco, talked about the role of nostalgia in psychology. It's in their episode 93. And does nostalgia have a psychological purpose? And she was asked by the interviewer, and I thought this was so good. The, interview, the interviewer said, your research has shown that nostalgia can be a stabilizing force and it can comfort us during times of change and transition. Can you explain that a bit more? And so Dr. Bochco said, yeah, change, whether it's good change or negative change, we know it's stressful and change can be very difficult to grasp because in some sense at a very deep level, change threatens us. And so it can be a little frightening because we're not 100% sure that we can control our environment. So change can feel scary. So one of the most important aspects, she said, of being a healthy human is being able to have a sense that you're in control of things. Man, our brain wants control. And that's why I talked about last week that we can have control or love in adult relationships. I wasn't saying that control, What? why it's crazy somebody wants control. No, that's how we're wired because we feel like if we don't have control, that then we are going to die to oversimplify it. So Dr. Bochco said, when things start to change, either very su substantially, such as major events in a person's life, getting married, getting a divorce, a new career, going back to school, graduating from school. It can often be comforting to have a nostalgic feeling for the past that reminds us that although we don't know what the future is going to bring, we do know uh, who we have been and who we really are at our core. And that is part of what nostalgia can do. She said, nostalgia can be a very comforting emotion. It also brings back, it stimulates memories of the times when we were accepted or loved unconditionally. You can start to see the psychological component of nostalgia that oftentimes if someone goes back to this place in Disneyland and they wear their favorite shirt and they put on their Disney ears and you see a lot of people with that and they're just all Disney because Disney oftentimes represents a time where they felt like they had more control or they had more safety or there was more love. And I can understand where that nostalgia comes. But Dr. Bochco says that is such a powerfully comforting phenomenon, knowing that there was a time in life when we didn't have to earn our love or we didn't, have, or we didn't uh, deserve it because we earned a certain amount of money or we were successful to a certain point, or that's what gave us our value. She said our parents, for example, or siblings, or friends simply loved us unconditionally. And that is a wonderfully comforting feeling when we're undergoing any kind of turmoil in our personal lives. 
So when you are going through these difficult experiences or going through change events in life, oftentimes our brain wants to go back to nostalgia. And so if you are a heavily nostalgic person, then I would imagine you've got some very, very comforting memories of your past. And then I talked a little bit last week about this concept called relational frame theory, where we will then take an emotion or a feeling and then we'll combine that, put that in the same frame as a place, maybe like Disneyland or a smell like uh, homemade cookies or a sound where if if we go and hear water, the ocean, for example, to me, what a relational frame of comfort to go to the ocean and hear those waves on the beach to the point of where it's my happy place. And thankfully my wife's as well. And so when we will often say that I would love to retire at the beach, and then I have someone else say to me, oh, you, you don't want that because of the sand and the wind and the this and the that. That's where I, I love, oh, bless their heart. That's not their experience. But, but that is one that I can put in this relational frame of goodness, so to speak, of that it does bring comfort and it helps me feel maybe more in control with my surroundings. Mindfulness. I put in my notes here, mindfulness coming out the wazoo. And it didn't autocorrect wazoo. So I think I probably spelled that right. That would be W-A-Z-O-O. So we drove through the night to get to Disneyland. We arrived at our hotel around 3 a.m. We pulled up. I was driving and I went to the front desk. And you can literally see the lights on the front desk. It's open. It's all windows. But nobody was there. So the door's locked. It says ring a bell. I ring that bell. And man, did I ring that bell. About 15 minutes solid, I rang that bell. And it was one of those where you could see a room connected to the front desk. So I rang, I rang, I found myself getting frustrated, and I could only imagine that person was asleep in their room. But uh, as much as I would start to notice my stress level or notice myself getting uh, frustrated, I didn't give in to it. I didn't react to it, acknowledge it, and then I would turn back to literally being very present and pushing the button, ringing the bell, smiling at my family as they looked out of the car. What's up? And so I just noticed it. I didn't react to it. Mindfulness. Remember, mindfulness is not trying to stop a thought. I want to say this every chance I get. People often say, I've tried mindfulness, but I can't clear my mind. Well, nobody can. Not that I'm aware of. So the mindfulness practice, let me be, let me just go over this. Any chance I get, I use the app called Headspace. I don't get anything for that. And in the app Headspace, the practice goes as follows. Typically, it's a guided meditation. There's a wonderful British guy named Andy who then says, all right, welcome back, sit in your chair, and then start to breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. Man, I feel calm just even saying that, and I just sat up in my chair. But breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth, and that is starting to lower your heart rate. Because remember, the higher your heart rate is elevated, the more of the stress hormone cortisol starts to get secreted, created. And when your brain gets cortisol, it thinks, oh, something's about to go down. So it starts to shut down the the prefrontal cortex or the limbic system. It starts to shut down the part of your brain where you have uh, you you have rational thought, and it starts to fire up that Neanderthal brain, that amygdala. So as you get more elevated, as your heart rate raises, then you are actually going into more of this fight, flight, or freeze state. So one of the first things you're training your brain to do is to come back to calm and lower the heart rate, lower the cortisol. So you can tap into that part of your brain that can think logically, which will allow you to be more present. And then you're in in the Headspace app, then Andy will often just go quiet. And that's the time where my brain starts to think and think and think, often even thinking, I don't have time to even do this mindfulness exercise. And then at some point he will say, okay, hey, gently uh, acknowledge your thinking and then come back to the breath. Think about breathing in, just in through the nose, out through the mouth. Or think about your, do a body scan, feel your back against the chair, your butt on the seat, your legs on the floor, your feet on the floor. And because what you're not doing when you're thinking or focusing on your breath or focusing on a body scan or listening to the sounds around you or the smells or whatever you can focus on, again, your brain isn't clear, but you're not thinking about the thought. You're not ruminating about the negative thought. You're not worrying about the future that can cause anxiety. You're not giving in to the compulsion that follows the obsession with obsessive compulsive disorder. You are bringing yourself back to present over and over again. And yes, oftentimes you, as soon as you come, you are not being present. Your brain immediately can go back to where it was, what it was thinking, what it was doing. And oftentimes we'll say, see, it didn't work, but that's the way our brain works. You are training the brain to be able to bring it back to the present moment. So I, I really feel like there were so many opportunities to be mindful, mindfulness in long lines. I remember being at this place called the Pizza Press one night, 
And I don't know if I've seen a line that long, but we were hungry. We were hangry. And, and we had already exhausted other options on where to eat, how quickly we could get back to a hotel and get food, lines everywhere. So that was one of the most mindfulness challenges I think I've taken on. And, and it worked. We made it through. We got the pizza. We ate. And it was amazing. Adrenaline. When I'm at this, when I'm waiting for this, uh, when I'm ringing this buzzer for 15 minutes, finally, I hear somebody say out of nowhere, can I help you? And I jumped. And there it was. And this one is a really funny thing that I've learned just from my office experience here is that after every session, I typically have to go to the bathroom because I stay hydrated. There's probably too much information there. But then when I come back, I often say, if my door is open to my clients to come on in, I've got a little fridge, they can grab a drink, that sort of thing. And so I will often not have heard them and feel like I'm only in the bathroom for a, a little short amount of time. So I come back in and I've got a client sitting on the couch, even though that's what I want them to do. That I, oftentimes I jump and it's one of the, the funnest things because now it's okay. I almost can wait for it. Give it about 20, 30 seconds and here comes the adrenaline and you can literally feel it through your, you feel it through your veins and it's fascinating. Really quick side note, if you've ever done uh, cryotherapy, which is that get into negative 90 and then negative 200 degree temperatures, it's uh, something that a lot of athletes do for recovery. I usually save the cryotherapy for any race over 50 miles, but when I do cryotherapy, it's a, it's a similar thing. So you will go in this negative 90 degree room and walk around a little bit. And then from there, enter a negative, sometimes it's 180 or 200 degree room. And boy, you have to keep walking around. And then you come out of that room, your core body temperature is just cold. And all of your blood has gone to, to save your life. It's around your heart and it's really working to keep you alive. And then on the experiences that I've been on, then they put you on an exercise bike and just have you barely start pedaling. And then you feel, it's so wild, you feel the blood go from your heart out through your body to your extremities. And part of that, the belief is that that will help clear out some of the lactic acid or some of the things that will make you sore as the days progress. And I have found that I feel like I'm sore, not as long. But my only point is that that is the feeling that you get if you really can, if you get a good scare by your kids or anything like that. And if you can tap into that uh, just being present in that moment, you can literally feel the adrenaline rush through your body. It's one of the most fascinating things. So I love it. So adrenaline, just a couple more things, and then we'll wrap this one up. I also put a note that kindness wins. Even though I was frustrated, especially in this experience with this person that wasn't there at four in the morning, even though I was frustrated, he apparently had walked down the street to get coffee. He didn't leave a sign that said he would be right back. None of those things. And I could have let him know all of those things, but I have a personal value of kindness or compassion or non-confrontation so that's what I turn toward. So now if somebody has a core value of justice or order, meaning that they are an absolute rule follower, then perhaps it would have been more in line with their core values to let that person know that it would have been more helpful for future people um, that might be showing up at 4 a.m. while he's getting coffee to know that he would be right back. So please leave a sign. This is what's fascinating. So check this out. If I was telling somebody that has this value of order or justice, if I were telling them, oh, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have told them those things then they're going to think, okay, cool story, but that's, that's who I am. Just like if I have this value of kindness or compassion and somebody is telling me, and I'm just giving this example, but I think you can maybe see where I'm going. Think of all the, the times where somebody's like, you know what you need to do? You need to tell that person that they need to do whatever. And it's something that you would never say or never do. Then guess what? Yeah, you, you don't have to do it. That is, that's where I talk again about control. I remember having this experience well before my therapy days. I remember being on a business trip with someone and they were the ones saying, hey, you, you need to call that waiter over and you need to tell him that he needs to do this. And I remember having this moment where I thought, no, it, you can, if that's what your experience would be. And this person that I used to travel with uh, on occasion, they started to get frustrated with me because they now knew that I was going to say, oh, yeah, I, I don't care about that. Or, But if you would like to, then that would be fine. So I think that one taps into that. If you are trying, If you are trying to do something that is not in line with your core values, it falls into the ranks of what we call an act, a socially compliant goal. And you're doing it because you think you should, or you're supposed to, or you have to. And your motivation is going to be weak and ineffective because it goes against your sense of self or who you are as a person. But if I'm tapping into my value-based goal, is it the quote right thing to do? Well, is there a right thing to do? And that's why I bring up this example of I, kindness for me. That's a value, compassion, connection, humor, those things. So if I'm tapping into those, then man, he scared me. That was funny. I'm going to tell him that he's saying, I'm sorry that I, was, I wasn't I was here. And I'm saying, hey, no problem. Now we're here. 
Now we're, now we're having an experience. Now we're having a connection. How's your night been? What time do you start? How often do you take a walk? And, and are there people often in my scenario or is this completely unexpected? Kindness. So in that scenario, I felt so much better walking away from that situation, even though, yeah, it was frustrating waiting for 15 minutes. I threw just a few random sampler notes here that I'll maybe just blast through. And these, if you have questions or thoughts or think that they would make a better podcast or another podcast, shoot me an email. But I saw somewhere, I put on here churros and being hangry, ADHD and hangry. And I just saw in a brief mention on a video that hangry or being angry and hungry was a very strong symptom of ADHD. And I thought that was fascinating because my family will make fun of me constantly that I am the nicest guy in the world until we placed our order for food. And then I just I get hangry. And now that I'm aware of it, I, I notice I am hangry. I comment on the fact that I'm hangry. I jokingly say I am going to not keep talking about being hangry while I try to stay present. So I thought that was interesting that sure enough, when man, when I would get uh, angry or hungry, that it was hard, it was hard to not start to become a little bit angry. Sunk cost. If you're familiar with that concept, that's the old, I've invested 2 million bucks in this project that is losing money repeatedly, but I'm going to put another million in because well, I've already put $2 million in. It's a sunk cost. That's a big, dramatic example from the business world that I had a client that I worked with at one point that that was what we were processing in a session. But I also talked with a, a good friend of mine with, that I used to travel to Japan with. He was a, a financial guy, so Scott. And he would often talk about the concept of sunk cost and how we can even apply that to you pay for a meal, but now you're full. And we often think, well, I don't want to waste. But you've already paid for the meal. So at that point, it doesn't necessarily do one any good to continue to um, pile that food away because it's already been purchased. Or I think about that, if you are about to go on a trip to Disneyland, this might be the, or any theme park or any vacation. And if you have not already laid out a budget, and if you don't already have a value of boundaries or order or rules or those sort of things, then I feel like there needs to be some acceptance that, look, when you pay money for admission to a park, then... Boy, try your, it, it can still feel very frustrating. I can't believe I paid a hundred and something dollars to get in here. And now we have a line or now we have this normal thoughts. We're human, but boy, those are incredible opportunities to come back to the present moment and just be present. The money has been spent. Be present. The food has been purchased. Be present. If the planning wasn't done in advance to have cheaper food or snacks or that sort of thing, then the complaining of it, it, it isn't a productive, workable thought. Be present. So I thought that was fascinating. Real quick, smile at the parent who you notice that seems overwhelmed. And I remember being that parent and my wife and I were handing out smiles for free on this trip. And you start to really recognize that, oh man, I remember being there with the kids in the stroller and somebody drops an ice cream and that sort of thing. And uh, so sometimes a, a smile is all that they need. I just put a note on here, you'll dry off eventually. I, again, talk about being present. I, I feel like it was that acceptance doesn't mean apathy principle. That once I accepted the fact that I was going to get soaked on the ride, then once I accepted it, then I wasn't uh, trying to contort my body and pulling things in my back to the point of where, and then being angry if I got wet. It was like, be present, accept the fact that on a water ride, I, I most likely will get wet and then enjoy the heck out of it. I'm not going to swan dive into the water, but when I got wet, I got wet because you're going to dry. You really are. You'll dry eventually. And I talked to, I wrote a note here about an experience in a line where I turned toward my value of knowledge. I noticed that we were getting a little bit worn out and there was a little bit of silence between the four of us in line. And uh, the other three people in line were probably fine with it. But my anxious attachment style, which I want to take ownership of, was constantly saying, if everybody isn't talking, they must be mad at me. How fascinating is that, right? I'm a therapist. I'm a pro. I'm 51 years old. I'm very secure in my and myself, but the brain is going to do whatever the heck it wants at times. And that good old deeply rutted anxious attachment style from childhood, there's silence. Are they thinking I should be carrying the conversation? So in those moments, I turned, I, I noticed that, I, that my anxious attachment style was firing up. And so then I just noticed it, acknowledged it, didn't try to push it away, didn't try to change that thought, didn't try to say, don't think those things, noticed it, and then just dropped the rope of the tug of war with the anxious attachment and then just pivoted toward a value of knowledge. And so I found myself continually Googling a ride and then just talking about fun facts about the ride. And a lot of times then we would be engaged in a pretty fun conversation. Turn toward your values when you are noticing the anxiety, the depression, the overthinking. And, and, and I already covered this one, but man, just give yourself permission to scream. Go big, be present, have an amazing time. And on that note, 
have an amazing week. I appreciate you sticking with me this long. Those are the things that uh, this therapist learned from his trip to Disneyland. And I would love if you have additional thoughts or questions or your experiences, comment wherever you're seeing this on a podcast app or on a YouTube channel or shoot me a shoot me an email, contact at TonyOverbay.com. I'd love to hear your experiences and I'd love to talk about those at some point as well. All right, everybody, thanks for joining me. Uh, taking us away is the, the, the amazing, wonderful, talented world for us with her song, It's Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind It's wonderful Elastic waste and rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most